A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case that they worked or that they lived through. Some are high profile, some you've never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about a brother searching for justice for his older sister, who was murdered in the fall of 1978 in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Through John Allure's determination to find the truth about his sister's death, he discovered a police force that was ignoring the cases of missing and murdered women. And to everyone's surprise, a previously undiscovered serial killer. With us today is John Allure. John's website and podcast are called Who Killed Teresa? John is also the co-author of the book, Wish You Were Here, about his sister's murder. John, welcome to the program. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much, and I appreciate that. And as I said to you before we started, I um, your condolences for everything that you have lost, that your family has lost, and everything that you've been through. So we're very sorry for that. Appreciate that. So, John, I, I'm curious, right on your website, um, you know, there's a banner and it says life is unfair, justice is blind, and some cops aren't smart and dedicated like on television. Yeah, it's a real smart ass kind of thing. <laughs> well, that's why you're on the program. We love smart asses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's that's really, you know, I don't know where that came from. I think it was um, justice is blind and dysfunctional at one point i may have i may have got rid of that but you know that's the kind of um smart mouth thing my sister would have said so it 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 really is kind of that you know that kind of tough talking i'm really not that tough but you know let's see if we can hang with it and Mm -hmm. if it works kind of thing yeah i i can certainly understand you know i find that um survivors of crimes whether it is the actual immediate victim or the family members are the ones who actually become the experts in this area and are always really either pushing the police or doing the police work for them. So let's talk about your sister. How old were you when your sister disappeared? I was between 13 and 14. There's a a window there of, you know, she disappeared um, in the fall of 78 Five and a half months pass, her body's found in the spring of 79. So between there, I had a birthday. Mm. So I was, I was really at that, you know, as this kind of, you know, chunky, awkward kid trying to figure out the world. And then, and this kind of fell on your lap. And, and you know, as I'm the youngest in my family. So, you know, I'm kind of the guy trying to figure, you know, figure out not only this, but life. Is this what life is supposed to be like? Is this the trajectory that everyone is, is you know, has thrown at them? This is a very confusing time. So when your sister disappeared, what was your family's initial reaction? Do you remember what was going on, what your parents were saying and doing? Yeah, that's not really, you know, I kind of, I kind of have to piece that together somewhat, you know, not only through, you know, I have talked to them about it, but it's obviously something that we don't return to as a conversation. We'd rather not talk about it, but I have, I have discussed it. And, 
you kind of piece it together through news articles. It was like, well, this was going on. You, you, you know, this event was going on. So I remember that. Therefore, I can sort of piece together how I, I feel. I think I think my parents were just generally like like anyone when they're when a child goes missing. There's there's that initial phase of con confusion, uh, of of just utter chaos, of helplessness. You know, take away cell phones and 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 this kind of thing. You know, there's there's always sort of like well. We live, uh, you know, 500 miles away. So one of you, you know, the father will go to Quebec, but somebody needs to stay at home and wait at the phone. You know, that's. That yeah, is, I think people don't forget. Yeah, people don't realize there weren't cell phones. There wasn't the Internet. Communication was different. You literally had a call home to home. It was, yeah. a, it was just a different time, a different place. And, and that, of course, affects the approach, the reaction of police and the resources available. So your sister, Teresa, was a college student. She was 19 years old when she vanished on November 3rd of 1978. Um, as you said, her body was found five months later, about a kilometer away from her dorm is our understanding. And this all happened in the spring thaw. Once there was the thaw, then her body was revealed. Authorities initially suggested that it was a suicide or perhaps the victim, your sister, had a drug overdose. Were any of those things true? No. I mean, it even got sillier, you know, you know, uh, um, an, aller uh, an allergic reaction, a runaway um, she was ashamed because she was a, a lesbian, so she ran some place to hide. I mean, just, just ludicrous. Everything I, except murder. They were willing everything, to everything except murder. And and this is something that comes up. It's sort of like, so what does the evidence say? What does the documented evidence say? Well, the the evidence says the toxicological report says no drugs, no booze in her system. And that evidence has been retested in the modern era. No drugs, no booze. The evidence says there, there was, you know, a document from the coroner at the scene of the crime where the, that the coroner documented marks of strangulation around her neck. And that got buried. So, so you have an investigator pushing this idea of like a victim blaming of, well, some, something bad happened that caused her to wander off in the night and she just died, but that's her fault. And I think initially you feel like, you know, the, I, I think the first wave of is investigative boobery, incompetence, stupidity. But the second thing is in the face of the evidence, when the police continues to push a drug theory, that's something else. That's something a little darker, a little more nefarious, I would mm -hmm. say. Absolutely. And, you know, that does not help the family in any way to try and change the narrative of what happened and, and look the other way from where the evidence is taking you. So at some point, I mean, so you were very young at this point. When is it that you decided to take a look at your sister's case and figure out what had happened. I understand that there, there's a person from, you know, way back in your life, a Patricia Pearson, who ended up uh, becoming a crime journalist. 
and you yeah, reconnected. I mean, that, I mean, that was part of it. it was Patricia and I would, had been like like high school boyfriend and girlfriend, and so we we knew each other, and then went to college and broke up and had other relationships. It's rarely the case, but the relationships survived beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to become friends, um, and you know, like families and all of that kind of thing. And she ironically became a crime reporter. I mean, the, the biggest case that she she did was the Paul Bernardo Car- Carla Hamulka case in Canada, the the Ken and Barbie serial killers. And oh, I don't yeah. know, I don't know a Canadian journalist that was not deeply affected by you know what came out of that case. And she covered it. So so you know, all of that is to say that we developed a shorthand for talking about crime. We we ended up in I, I think you're LA based. Um, Mm-hmm. We ended up in L.A. and and even before I in murder was on my mind with Teresa, I was gravitating to places like Gretna Green, like where the Black Dahlia was found. You, you know, Why? Right? Why visit these murders? What did this have to do with Teresa? Nothing. It was <laughs> in my mind. Um, it wasn't even murder at that point. I mean, this was in the in the mid 90s. So when did all that change? When, when did you say, yeah. all right. That's it. I'm going to start investigating this. Well, I mean, it's it's in the book. Wish you were here. And the short answer is we moved from L.A. to North Carolina and I bought my first home. And within six weeks of buying that home, the police showed up on my doorstep and said, do you mind if we bring a sniffer dog around the property? The former owner's son is the lead suspect in a murder investigation. And we believe the body was on this property or maybe still hid here that's the that and then it was like you know life is telling me (laughs) and was there a body was there a body in the home there was not a body but but the dog lighted on the ground and so under the house in the crawl space it's very la confidential um and so it was um it was the consensus was that the body of debbie key had been stored there for a couple of weeks before it was depo- disposed in a in a dumpster in Wil- Wilmington, North Carolina. Oh, and my it, Lord. But but the fact is they had such an earnestness and such a dedication that was really impressive. Okay. And I was like, if these guys can do this, then what the hell is wrong with the Quebec police? Okay. So then from this point, you in earnest begin your investigation into your sister's death. What did you end up turning up? Well, I, I think, you know, as I say, the, the big piece was, you know, drug overdose, drug overdose. And then, and then this, this evidence, this document that says no drugs. And the second, you know, major piece was that document that said strangulate, you know, strangulation. And then and then come to find it's like, okay, did anybody else die around that time? That that was the the logical question to ask. Are there any other unsolved murders? And lo and behold, I mean, Sherbrooke is a very small. I think at that time it was 80,000 people in 1978. And lo and behold, two other young women. I died with within 19 months of each other within about a 25 mile radius. And, and the, so the next question is, are they still unsolved? Yes, they're s- still unsolved. 
So that really became like the nexus point for kind of digging. And, um, you know, from then it became, okay, who else is unsolved? 20, 30, 40, you know, 40 cases in, in the 70s. And, and what became obvious was that, was that young women in Quebec, as far as the police were concerned, were collateral damage in their broader interests of chasing bad guys related to gangs and drugs and local organized crime. And, and, and if along the way somebody had murdered someone, well, then that was okay. Or they didn't understand sexual murder, you, you know, in, 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 the, in the sense that we have an understanding today. So what I'm trying to figure out is, as you're looking at these pieces and these cases, were you at some point able to find someone who was sympathetic either um, in the prosecutor's office, which I believe you all call the crown, or in the police department? Or were you just kind of piecing everything together yourself? Not at all. No one. I mean, I was looking for that kind of super cop, you, you know, sympathetic cop. Um, and and all what I was really getting was smoke and mirrors. I, I was either getting doors slammed in my face or I was having people come at me um, with their hand out. And it, and it became obvious very quickly that they were trying to pump me for information to kind of see how far I was willing to go and, and what my true motive was. Was I going to sue anybody? I mean, it was all that kind of cloak and dagger kind of nonsense that I didn't have time for. And that's from... That's from everyone, investigative forces, from from anyone who at the time would have been involved in in, in the justice system, the, the crown or prosecutor or um, defense, um, the media. The media also did not really want, you know. I do. I do. I was a street reporter for a very long time. Yeah. And um, boy, I can tell you standing in those morning meetings trying to convince the managers of cases that should be covered versus what they thought was news. And yeah, it's to this day, we see the problem of families trying to get the media's attention. I mean, I mean, Sherbrooke and its larger area, which is known as the Eastern Townships, is the land of Louise Penny novels. Basically, I'm not degrading Louise Penny, but I what I am saying is there's a cottage industry around her Armand Gamache and murder mysteries now where people will travel there and eat in restaurants and want to see the, the places fictitiously that she talks about Hillary Clinton vacations in the Eastern townships. So there's big tourist monies coming in there. So the last face they want to see on the front of their newspaper is this guy saying you might've had a problem with a serial killer. And you know what? He may still live here. Who knows what happened? Uh, can we, you know, I, I mean, I think the trope of the serial killer is overused. Yeah. Um, I don't particularly like it, quite frankly, on the cover of my book. But that, again, is marketing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, not not that there are not. I, I would I would say, yes, that is an angle that I wanted to thoroughly investigate. But it's not the only thing. You know, it's not exclusive, exclusive, exclusive of everything else. It comes with small town um, politics, small town policing, all of that. 
Sure. I mean, you have that versus you have a very big department that's overwhelmed and not enough time for the smaller cases. It's almost as if you can never find the right balance here. Um, I am curious as to a lot of times when someone well-meaning tries to bring up the past, they are met with a very unexpected reaction. One would think open arms. And this includes family members, friends. I'm just curious, what was the reaction as you tried to dig all this up? Uh, my my family and friends reaction? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they try to be supportive, but I don't think they really understand. I mean, my mother will are probably has to do this mental exercise in her head of being very supportive of of her youngest son, but at the same time being deeply concerned. Mom's probably, um, is far more aware in some senses that, you know, there's that, um, there's that gut feeling that this could be, uh, dangerous. You know, there is a reason people will leave these bodies to be, and I'm not saying that's right, but, um, yeah. So as you progressed, at what point, at what point was there a change? At what point did you say, were you ever able to identify your sister's killer? Well, I, I've learned from investigators not to work in the, the realm of good, the good investigators. There are some to, to, to work in the arena of percentages and probabilities and to never say a hundred percent, they just don't. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a few people who are like seventy percent sure, and 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 one of them was a guy, um, uh, like a roofer, working class guy named Luke Gregoire, who who lived, you know, was was involved in crime in the area at the time, um, had had been arrested for several rapes in the right striking points in all of that. He went on, he he left town at a very young age, almost as if the, as if somebody kicked him out of town mm. to get, get the hell out of here and, and proceeded to have a very accelerated active criminal career in Calgary, Alberta, and did murder a woman there and, um, named Lanny Silva, uh, a 7-Eleven um, clerk. Um, and the M.O. of of Lanny Silva's murder matches very, very nicely with the, the potential assailant in the Sherbrooke murders. So Luke, in 1993, was charged with the murder of that 7-Eleven clerk in Calgary. He was yeah. given an automatic life sentence, no chance of parole for 25 years. He died in prison in 2015. And as you say, not only is he suspected in in other crimes as well in the Calgary area. So my question for you is, at the point that you thought that the percentages were pointing in the direction of Luke as the potential killer to your sister, was he still alive when you made that conclusion and were you able to reach him? Yeah, I wrote him a letter. (laughs) I wrote him a letter. I I thought... And it was it was risky, you know. I I didn't want to be, I didn't want to say, "Hi, it's me." <laughs> I really because he was at a maximum security prison in in 
north of Montreal named Archambault, which is hells it oh, it holds everybody, the Hell's Angels and everything. And it's like so the the potential dominoes, how they could fall, were it was it was it was potentially dangerous. So I wrote him a very calculated letter um, that that sort of just said, you know, Mr. Gregoire, this thing happened. And and I just said, you know, if you know anything, if you know, I didn't accuse him. I just said, if you know anything about this, because you work in the milieu, I mean, <laughs> it was it was it was ridiculously polite. You know, it was sort apparently of like, I, I don't <laughs> want you to look at me, you know, too harshly. Um, and surprisingly, I was shocked that within about two weeks later here in North Carolina, I got a letter from from Luke Gregoire, handwritten, um, that essentially said, I didn't kill your sister. But it was the way it was written that several people have looked at that letter, mm -hmm. in, including the guy who did all the, 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 the analysis with the Unabomber case. Are you talking about John Douglas? Yes, I am. John you know, Douglas. John Douglas has been on this program. Really? Uh, he's a prince. He was fantastic. Oh, he's the best. For all of you listening, there's a my favorite case with John Douglas about a case that he covered. We love John Douglas. So go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so several people looked at this and including John Douglas and, and, and a lot of what they sort of said is it's the way he answers that it's very it was very provocative. He didn't exactly say I didn't kill your sister. He inferred it. But there was a lot of ego in in. in in the in the letter and there was there was a lot of just weird language mm -hmm. and compare that to so later i sent the same letter to two other notorious murders in quebec who i know had nothing to do with the case to as a you know as an acid test as a as a control variable oh that's that's funny you're trying to apply a control to this group I, good luck with that john good luck with that <laughs> but, but but that the response was was telling. One guy didn't respond at all. Mm -hmm. That would make sense. And the other guy responded. Uh, Claude Larouche responded. I, I would just say, um, you know, Luke's letter was on loose leaf. Claude's letter was on this very proper paper. You know, with art like winter scene of a Quebec cabin and stuff behind it it was odd man it was odd and and he wrote it in you know he used I not to the point of it being egotistical but properly he he properly addressed sort of like wow this is really sad and I feel really bad for you and I had nothing to do with it convincingly where mm -hmm. Luke didn't where Luke mm -hmm. didn't was that the end of your conversation with Luke? This one exchange? Yeah, uh, regrettably. I, <laughs> not that I'm accustomed to, you know, interchanges with, with violent offenders. But in that particular case, I, I think I have some regrets that, that he died in 2015. Um, I mean, I know sort of the backstory. I know he, I know they polygraphed him and he passed that polygraph. Big deal. If you're pathological like Luke Gregoire, you can pass that polygraph test. So, but he was just an intriguing. I know they put an informant in his cell to try to get him to 
say something, but the guy was very cunning, very cunning. So he intrigued me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So to this day, would you say that your sister's murder is solved or would you say it's still, I mean, you think this happened and maybe he did it or where are you in all of this? I will give you a, a simplified version. Since the book was published, it, um, you, you know, the, what is in the book is is like a really close like depiction of it happened something like this, mm-hmm. but there were pieces missing in the book that were filled out when, when a woman went to my website from Quebec and wrote me, wrote me last fall, last September and said, I, I think my uncle killed your sister. Um, and <clears throat> I get I over the years I've gotten lots of emails like that and most of them are like really it's a lot of bullshit. Um, was her uncle Luke or was it somebody else? Someone else remarkably like Luke. Like just oh. lived in the same neighborhood and mm. and worked with the same criminal and hung out at the same bars. I mean all of it was the same. All of it was exactly the same. So is this person, without revealing too much, is it possible this person is still alive? He's dead. Oh. It's a 45-year-old case, man. I mean, yeah. he's also dead. That, that gives you a lot of freedom, though, when that happens. It does. It does, can, where people can, can piece things together and... Say um, whatever you want, really. Yeah. When your sister's body was discovered, was there anything forensically that was preserved in any way, either her clothing, anything... There's the rub. Mm. There's the rub. So, you know, what What they did return to us forensically, I'm, I, her watch and things, most significantly her wallet. We still have her wallet, which is, we can get to that. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but her, her underwear was disposed of. Her clothing was never found. But w- with the, the underwear being disposed of, um, within five years of her being found has been a particularly challenge, let's say challenging, but it's not uncommon yeah. uh, in, in, in looking at these, I said 20 cases, then 30, then 40, the, the common denominator with them is less some unified unifying serial killer. It is, it is really the commonality is the, criminal investigative failures in those cases. Mm. Due to the number, almost all of them had their evidence tossed. All of them. Uh, yeah, that is hard. That is that is heartbreaking. I, I, I want to get back then to your, to your sister's wallet. What if any clues were in the wallet? So here's the thing. The, the wallet, in a sense, was also disposed of in the sense that they gave it back to my father. <laughs> gave a piece of forensic evidence. I'm glad they did it because had they not done that as a souvenir, you know, had they not done that, they probably would have thrown it away. Mm-hmm. So so it, it stayed in a drawer in a paper bag in my dad's filing cabinet for years until finally I inherited it. He said, you're doing this work. You should have this. So I returned the wallet to the police and asked them to forensically test it. And they lifted DNA off it 
And it's not my DNA because I asked, I said, stick me, take it because I've touched it. I did, you know, and probably my dad did. So it's not mine. It's not my father's DNA that is on there. They tested it against Luke. It was inconclusive. So there's, there is, and, but it gets, it gets better because the second suspect I talked to you about police know this suspect and um and they agree that he's a good suspect so they go to me we want to test it against this family because the the niece brought it forward right the process will take us you ready two years the paperwork the this the that i believe it in the meantime they don't they they don't realize that i have the wallet they returned it to me again they, they have the DNA, but they don't yeah. have the wallet. Mm-hmm. So it, within the space of a month, I swabbed the, the niece. I took the wallet here to a rapid DNA site with our local, one of the community colleges. She did it. She, Jean Slaughter did it within two hours and returned the, the, the results to me. They also were inconclusive, unfortunately. But the point is, what is taking them two years to do, I did in two hours. I know. Uh, you know, you know this. Oh, yeah. we do. We do. Or we have, um, you know, we've had some DNA experts on our program. There is one group that, um, Othram Lab, that we've had on before and continue to have on because they are fascinating because they work in degraded DNA. So a lot of DNA labs, you know, if they can't get a full sequence, sometimes they don't have the technology or the software to finish the sequence, or they don't want to deal with something so degraded because it's unlikely they'll be able to help. So this lab works in the degraded area, like they live in that space. And they've just had remarkable, remarkable success there. I, I'm not blaming the cops in this situation. If what they need is someone telling this story to their higher ups and saying, for God's sakes, can you get these guys, can can somebody write a grant and get these guys a rapid DNA tester, please? I know. I, I think I will say this, though. I, I hear you on the rapid, but I do believe it takes a little bit longer than that. Like, and and I hear your desire to get information, but sometimes, you know, there are reasons for the procedures and so on. Of course, in this case, you're dealing with someone who's deceased. So it's quite unlikely, you know, you're going to worry about this person because you can't prosecute this person. So, um, okay. So you, so you're still waiting on that. Am I correct? You're still waiting on the official DNA results for this. The official, yeah, yes, because they might, you know, the sample they lifted a, over a decade ago might be much better, a better sample than what we did. And, oh, and, totally. when, and when I saw, you know, them do it here at the community college, it's a very subjective thing. You're yeah. guessing, you're guessing where somebody, it's a good guess, where might they touch? Well, they might touch where money was. And, you know, that, that mm-hmm. would, that's logical. But yeah. it, it is it is more of an art than a science, that part of it, unless unless you canvass the entire piece of evidence. And, and that would take a lot of time. So there's the wallet. Were there any contents in the wallet? Well, y- yes. Um, 
there was no money, but you know, there was her bus pass. There was her. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, I it's know. picture it's not... of her boy, picture of her boyfriend, hmm. you know, a, a ticket to like a, a college play she went to see. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, her, um, I mean, really these artifacts of life, her, her McDonald's badge for when she worked at McDonald's. I mean, hmm. all of this stuff, her library card, it's, I mean, I still have it. It's because, you know, these things become um, like touchstones or, you know, holy relic is an overreach, but you, you, you get the point. They become very sacred to a family. They oh, do. absolutely. They, they hold power, they hold meaning. They do. They absolutely do. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. You know, the, these are the, I hate to say the word, the artifacts, right? But yeah, they are absolutely. the pieces of a human life. Yeah, I think they, they think it's the right word. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That, that's a lot. So you're still, so you're still waiting on that DNA. In the meantime, while this case is still brewing and you obviously are not giving up, I'm, I'm curious you know, as I uh, was reading about you and went to your website, it sounds like you're like the OG of crime blogs here. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, like, you know, the the original, if you will. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh that, <laughs> you know? that, that's interesting. You know, I was, I was, there's some truth in that. Mm -hmm. um, I I started my blog 20 years ago. And, and at, at that time, um, I remember this. I was a little reluctant to do it, but I um, because what was out there for victims were a lot of tribute pages, you know, ah. pictures of, of the victim with angels and she still lives. And then it was very nice, but it was not as aggressive as I wanted to be as crime solving. Now, that sounds kind of um, quaint. And now, I mean, people are so out there now, but not at the time. Uh, you know, I did it because I was because investigative journalism was drying up um, and you really needed to, you know, if you wanted to keep the message out there, you needed to do something like who killed Teresa to keep the case alive. So I, I, I did it. But I, I was a bit, you know, like, should I do this? Is this am I revealing too much? Is is, you know, is it embarrassing? All, all of that. All of, and I say it now because I can laugh about it because there are people who are much more <laughs> extreme than I am, you, you know, today. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, now, what do you do with everything that you've learned? Well, that's that's a good question. You, you know, I've sort of be become, uh, I think the proudest thing that, that I'm aware of is there are many things, but the thing that I would say is in starting to document on my website, case after case, after case, after case, something that very foundational that happened was because of that. There are other reasons, but because of that, the, the provincial police, the Quebec police force, the Sûreté de Quebec created a cold case unit because of not just me, but pressure from people like us. And they added 25 officers and they put up a website and I could see, you know, I kept saying I could see the cases that I was talking about slowly entered onto their site. And, you know, at first it was two or three and now it's over 700. So slowly to see that, I mean, 
some of these efforts are static. I'm, I'm still disappointed that, you know, their approach is pretty much come to our site, look, look at the faces. If you know anything, give us a call. And, I, and, and I'm like, come on, guys. That's not, you got to engage people. It's not the way it works. No one's going to call you. No one is going to call Well, you. my experience is, and this happens a lot, people will call and then they're not taken seriously. So then they'll reach out to me or I have a partner that I work with who is a retired homicide detective and the two of us do a lot of work on our own, just trying to help people. And um, we'll get on the phone with them, we'll get on Zoom and they'll say to us, well, you know, we went to the police on such and such day. They'll know who they talked to, they'll have had their records. And then we'll say, and, and how was this information taken? And it's like, well, nothing happened. And then we will contact the police again and say, so this person says that they told you this, and this is the information that they have. Um, I find that sometimes to be particularly helpful because if there's a third party, whether it's a journalist or um, a citizen activist or uh, an internet sleuth, whatever, however you describe yourself, that if the third party has documented it and then sends it to the police like what you do, then the police are unnoticed that someone else is watching. That's one factor. I also do believe, look, these police departments are completely understaffed. I, they just are. And now in post-COVID or current, whatever you want to, what's going on in our world and, and so many things, um, they are. So I do believe that there's room for help. The question is, will they accept the help? I, I think you, you just touched on an excellent point. I mean, you, I just said they added 25 cold case investigators. The reality about that are those, is that those officers are constantly redeployed for yeah. whatever issue du jour is, arises, whether it's sort of targeting, uh, you know, mass arrests of Hell's Angels or COVID crisis, or right now there's a situation in in, in northern north the north part of Montreal with a series of murders. And I know I was told they were redeployed. Now I can I can vent about that and say mm -hmm. you're not fulfilling your mandate, or I can or I can confront the reality that that happens and work within the framework. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean. Look, do you feel like you've made a difference? I mean, it certainly appears to me that you have. I, I, I do. I mean, I, I, I try. It's not all my life, but I do try every day to do one thing yeah. that advances. the, And that can take it can take two hours. It can take five minutes. Mm -hmm. But one little thing every day to just advance thing. Send an email or or, or as you say, when you're in this position now and somebody comes to you and says, I, I, someone was murdered and I don't know how to deal with the finding information or the police as, as someone who's been doing it for 20 years, I feel there's a responsibility to, to take a, a leadership position and help people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if they're, if they're willing to be helped, if they're asking for help, some people don't want to be helped. That's, that's fine. Yeah. And, for some people it's too much and they just cannot relive it all. And I, I understand that. And we have to respect that as well. Everybody yeah. handles these tragedies quite differently. Um, so how you're, 
your website, for example, if someone wants to reach out to you, is that the easiest way for them um, to connect with you? What, what's the procedure for everybody? Yeah, it is. It's really simple. I think my email is right there on the front page. Mm-hmm. You, can, uh, you know, I, I pondered that a lot. And I was like, mm-hmm. just, just leave your email. You can email me. I'm easy to find. Yeah. Um, so who killed Teresa is, is the website. And yes. then you have your podcast, which you have available on your website as well. Correct. All right. So if people want to find you, your website is who killed Teresa. That's also the name of your podcast. Yeah. It's just, and it's the podcast is who killed Teresa. The website is just Teresa lore.com T H E R E S A A L L O R E point com. And the name of your book is wish you were here Mm. it's been lovely having you on and i'm sorry for the circumstances that have brought us together i've I've enjoyed meeting you anna and having the conversation it was great you can always find me at anna g news anna with one n you can find all episodes of all our podcasts the series which we call my favorite case or True Crime Daily, the podcast, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel and also to our newsletter. Just go to our website, truecrimedaily.com. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast, a special edition that we call my favorite case, reminding everyone, don't do crime. <laughs>